Welcome to the Startup of the Year podcast, where each episode we showcase exciting new companies from around the world. This podcast is produced by Established, creators of the Startup of the Year program. Established is focused on helping organizations with their innovation, startup, and communication strategies. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Startup of the Year podcast. I'm John Guidos, the CEO of Established and managing member of Established Ventures and the team behind the Startup of the Year community and this very podcast. Same as last week, I'm filling in as host today for our co-CEO, Frank Gruber. But don't worry, he'll be back hosting again next week. On this episode, we are going to be listening to an interview that Frank did with Blake Hall, the founder and CEO of ID.me. Over the last decade, Blake and his team have turned their startup into a unicorn business while developing a way to simplify and share your identity online securely, which is very important these days, let's all be honest. We'll get a chance to hear some of his experiences as a founder as he talked with Frank at the ninth Annual Startup of the Year Summit, which was presented by ReliaQuest, hosted by Embark Collective, and powered by Established. Blake was one of our many speakers at the summit, and as mentioned during the last episode, we will be sharing most of those interviews on the podcast over the next few months, so please keep a lookout for those episodes in the future, and hopefully they provide some tips and strategies to some of our listeners and community members. Okay, now let's listen into Frank's chat with Blake Hall. Thank you, Blake, for being here. Of course, happy to be here. Yeah, and we were just talking, it's a silent D, uh, dot Yeah, in your, in your ID name. Me. ID me, okay. All right, so let's let's get started here. I know we were talking last night, um, and we were kind of reminiscing because we've known each other for a long time, and um, wanted to get kind of your backstory for everyone that doesn't know um, about how how you got into this this startup, you know, your startup journey, right? Like the startup life that's been, you know, going on now for over a decade. You can believe it. I don't think I had gray hair when I met you. <laughs> I believe that, so, that too. Yeah. And I Jennifer. still don't. I still don't actually. These are summer blondes. But anyway, we'll talk about that another time. Absolutely. Yeah. Jennifer started her thing in uh, in 2010 as well. So right. You know, back to back. Around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, share share a little bit more about how how you got started and kind of your early memories of what then was called Troop Swap. Troop Swap. Yep. Yeah. And you know, now uh, when investors kind of are like, "Man, how did you get here?" Right. And I'm like, you know, uh, you know that scene from Die Hard where Bruce Willis has to go across the broken glass. I'm like that was the last 10 years of my life. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> now it's Yippee-Ki-Yay. But, uh, but I always get really excited when I come back into environments like this, because I mean, this was me, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And, um, you know, so, so my background, uh, I, uh, I was an infantry officer, led a reconnaissance platoon and was going into combat in Iraq in 2006, uh, into Mosul, and uh, there's some three-letter agencies that said, forget everything that you've uh, learned about reconnaissance and precision engagement. You're going to be running kill capture missions as like a SWAT team. And uh, if you've watched Narcos and, uh, and you know, kind of killing Pablo Escobar and that stuff, the, the Atari version, uh, what they were using then, we were using, I'm old now, so I wouldn't say PS5, but like the PS3 version to, uh, to take down, you know, uh, insurgent leadership in Iraq. So I didn't know it at the time, but uh, got an amazing uh, introduction to uh, identity and you know, terrorists do uh, things that legitimate people don't do. They swap their SIM cards all the time. They change their phone numbers, their devices. They use voice biometric couriers. Uh, and when I uh, I went from you know Baghdad to uh, Harvard Business School, and uh, and I was quite a difference. Change, <laughs> <laughs> jeez. I've got some pictures there too. I mean, there was you know this neighborhood in Baghdad that had standing sewage in the streets and uh and al-qaeda had put these bombs in the sewage infrastructure and these people's life you know is miserable 
And to go from that to, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts was just crazy. Uh, <laughs> different, yeah. I mean, th that's probably what gives folks PTSD is just like, it's just, it's literally schizophrenic. Um, and so, but what I learned along the way and what uh, Jennifer talked a lot about is that when we first started on this mission set, we weren't very good. You know, our success rate was like 20%, theater average success rate was 44%. We kept getting better. We caught the head of the Mujahideen Shura Council for Mosul, the spiritual leader of Al-Qaeda for Northern Iraq. We became the surge or the, the kill capture of force of choice for Northern Iraq under Colonel Townsend, who's now General Townsend. Brigade became the surge strike force. We became a division asset in Baghdad. And then the last you know, two months, I was running uh, operations for Task Force Night, which is part of Joint Special Operations Command, British SAS operators with my crew. And our success rate was north of 90%. It got to the point where the sergeants in the operations center, they stopped betting on whether or not we would get the target and just how many minutes after we got on site to when we did our job. And so um, that was just through repetitive learning. You know, it was about uh, getting a little bit better every day. And, you know, 13, 14 months into it, we were we were rocking, like, and in, in really in a groove. And I figured, you know, uh, maybe somewhat naively that, uh, that you know, I, I saw that life is short. Um, did a brief stint. That's dangerous work. So that's not just like, you're making it sound like it was just easy. You know, he just would have did a bunch of stuff and it was, yeah, that's yeah. really hard, hard work. It, it was, it was hard work. And, yeah. and, I, and I, and I figured, you know, no one would be shooting at me over here, but you know, maybe uh, if I could use the same principles, or I hope not anyway. Yeah, I mean, it depends where you are, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, you know, I, when I did a brief stint at McKinsey, knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, and then saw that, you know, government agencies and stuff are relying on credit bureaus. But first, to your point, I saw that military uh, families and, and people couldn't prove their military service to organizations. And so the original idea and concept for what is now IDME was troop swap. It was a military Craigslist, like a trusted version of Craigslist in the same way that Facebook started with students and kind of you know, grew to mass market. Um, we made two pivots along the way, but, uh, but first I met you and Jen in DC. Right, so you, just, you were just getting out of of Harvard and you were you were coming down, got this had this idea. Remember it was like in 2011, I believe, and you were you got like a U-Haul or something, you're moving yeah. across the country, you're down down this coast, and your first thing you went to was like one of our back in the day we used to host these events called Tech Cocktail and you rolled in and connected with us and and pretty much the rest is history. That was it. That was the beginning and the end. So it, <laughs> and a story. No, no, there Frank yeah, there, that was it. No, no. Three billion dollars. Right, exactly. Got. Immediately it was skyrocketed. Uh, no, but no, let's Let's talk about it. So you literally were, yeah. that story is kind of interesting because now you, you are at this point. So you were bootstrapped, you had this idea and you really kind of shows that you, I mean, you were basically trying to figure it out with what, how much in your bank account, bank account trying to make this work, you know? I, I turned down like a quarter of a million dollar, you know, salary from McKinsey, paid back a $25,000 signing bonus. Uh, I'd raised $100,000 from a classmate and then David Tish, who is the first managing director of Techstars New York. Okay. Yep. And, uh, and the first sale I made was to some of my like rugby buddies uh, from business school where I was like, can I sleep on your couch? Like probably <laughs> the only homeless Harvard business school graduate in the country. <laughs> some of the same conversations I had with myself at Ranger School. It was like, dude, you can you do know, this. You yeah. the New York Yankees <laughs> consulting and making a quarter of a million dollars and instead right. paying myself like 40 grand a year and like literally homeless, like with these poor right. guys and sleeping on the couch. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and eventually got to a moment where I only had $10,000 left in my bank account, but I figured mm -hmm. it was either all in or quit. And, uh, and so I knew that DC would 
be the right place for us given the importance of government and identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, signed a, a $50,000 lease on a house in Swan Street uh, near DuPont Circle in DC with $10,000 in my account. <laughs> Put a U-Haul behind my pickup truck, drove down I-95 from Boston to mm -hmm. DC, literally got into town, threw a mattress on the on the bed of the of the house, <laughs> and then uh, went around the corner to a tech cocktail event. And met you and Bunch Jen. of people, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, and and so, and so I wasn't joking. The rest is history. Um, so, no, so, and then you came. You basically had this idea that was Craigslist, and you pivoted to. How did you get to cybersecurity? Like, what was like, what was that like, and what was that journey? Because you, you you've kind of meandered to get to there, yeah. and now you're. You have a deal with like the IRS. You're everywhere. You're you're really growing. So yeah, I mean now you know 70 million users. We'll have 100 million uh, Americans enrolled by the end of uh, tax season. And a lot. It's, yeah, it's like 40 percent <laughs> of American adults. Wow. You know, um, uh, over half of California is enrolled. And and so um, yeah, that's you know I, I think Peter Thiel kind of talked about this too. Like a startup is about finding a secret that nobody else knows about that serves a need. And and then the hard part is like, well, how do you shoot the gap, right? Like. We all probably knew that taxi cabs needed to be disrupted, but it, it was Travis Kalanick who realized, man, rich people will pay mm -hmm. for a more premium ride and there's black car drivers. And that was his gap that he shot to eventually just transform that industry to what it is now and like to improve all of our lives. And so, um, so as we were working on this, I knew that I needed distribution from like USA and military.com to get enough buyers in order to get sellers to post. Mm -hmm. Talked with them, mm -hmm. they liked it. And I called them a couple of weeks later and I said, uh, I said, hey, you know, like, what's the timeline if this moves forward? And they go, well, fast for us is 18 months. Uh, and part for the course is two to three years. <laughs> when I heard that, I mean, yeah. it was just crushing. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I called uh, Kelly Purdue, who's on our board, and I said, you know, I, I don't think that this is going to work. And it's too long. Yeah, it's too long of a time. And the first thing he said to me was, uh, was chin up. Mm -hmm. Like, never tell that to anyone again because they won't write you a check. <laughs> right. <laughs> And we're Forget gonna, we have this conversation. <laughs> we're going to get through this. And uh, I'll, I'll always love Kelly for that. And I mean, we have 2,000 employees now and 500 contractors. And if not for that conversation, uh, I would have not, you know, stayed stayed the course. And so that's what led to like signing the lease and coming down. And then, mm -hmm. um, you know, very quickly, we just realized that uh, we talked to companies and they said, you know, you guys don't have any users and a destination website for military doesn't isn't super appealing. Mm -hmm. But they said, if you had the ability to verify that somebody was a member of the military in real time, we would actually build that into our own uh, website, into our checkout cart. Right. And then it was kind of like, well, whoa, like what if we were like PayPal, mm -hmm. you know, for, uh, for identity? So, and then the federal government came out with this national strategy for trust identities in cyberspace in 2011 and said, it doesn't really make sense for Americans to have to create a new login at every government agency. And it's a credit bureau behind the scenes that they're paying over and over again. So like you go to social security, create a login, they pay Equifax. Hmm. You go to IRS, create a login, they pay Equifax. Like you go to another one, you create a login, they pay wow. Equifax. And it's like, wow. why don't we just verify them once? Seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and let their verified identity move with them. And so I was like, well, that's what I'm trying to do for military families to prove hmm. who they are. And these brands said, you know, it's not just military that we try to verify. We need to verify if folks are students, if they're teachers, if they're influencers on social media, mm -hmm. uh, at Home Depot and Lowe's, if they're professional contractors. And I was like, oh, interesting. So even, yeah, so you've even gone verticalized oh, around yeah. oh, that. Wow. And so, so it was oh, like the concept of digital wallets, like folks are always focused on like payments, right? Mm -hmm. But a digital wallet, if you, if you think about what's the ID card that you would least like to lose, mm -hmm probably your driver's license yeah. or your passport. Definitely. 
because your driver's license allows you to go to a bank and say, hey, I lost my credit card and debit card. Could I get it back? It authenticates all the other cards in there. And so it was like, whoa, if we can create this secure login, which is the wallet, we allow people to prove that they're military or a teacher or their legal identity, mm -hmm. then they can control their own identity and we can streamline the process of login and identity verification across all the IDs that you have in your wallet right. in the same way that Visa streamlined payments mm -hmm. um, and to make it faster and easier for, for everybody. And so that, once I kind of saw that, you know, we... There's a seam. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going for it. There, there it was. It was yeah. like military is mm -hmm. where we enter. Mm -hmm. We can get to a bunch of brands. And today, yeah. you know, Apple and Samsung and Bose are customers and Veterans wow. Affairs. Yep. And then when we got to VA, VA is the largest healthcare organization in the country. So now 127,000 healthcare providers of 938,000 active physicians use this every day. Mm -hmm. Prescribe controlled substances to help fight the opioid crisis because those manual pads are too vulnerable to, to theft. And so we just kind of kept surfacing the adjacencies. Mm -hmm. And so now you could be who you are. And then we also know that you're a doctor. Mm -hmm. So for a healthcare app, that can be really important to be like, this is a patient, mm -hmm. whereas like this is a doctor. We don't see what happens in the app. Right. They now know this is a doctor. and so Legitimate doctor. Yeah, yeah, right. To see. There's, there's real identity there. You, you figured it out. So I'm curious. So this is something that came up years ago. I used to be at AOL where we, we literally, I worked on AIM. Which yeah. Dates me. I'm actually a lot younger. Um, but if you remember AOL, it was a certain. Does anybody remember AOL? Okay, a couple of people. Good. My right. my handle for that, by the way, is Crazy Arms Man <laughs> from the Adam Sandler. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, but what I was getting at is back in the day, we were working on on authentication, and companies like AOL, which like doesn't exist anymore, and Google's went in there, Open Auth. Like you got, had all these different players going in to try to do exactly what you're trying to do, and yeah. and create online identity. And this is 2007, 2006 yeah. timeframe. And here we are, you know, I don't do math well, but that's like 15 years or so. And um, more or less, now you're doing it. Yeah. How do you stay pure? Because all those, a lot of those companies, like Google does it, that you can yeah. sign in with Google or Facebook and all that. And it just, it's gotten a little bit messy because of their backings and their, their, their paths that they've gone into the metaverse sure. or whatever they're doing now. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, you're right. No, I mean, ac across the years, you know, um, Microsoft was the first one to try to do this right. Microsoft Passport. That initiative right. failed. Right. Uh, I think my favorite, or like maybe some shade and Freud there, but uh, the telecoms tried to do this with the mobile wallet. It was called uh, ISIS, which... <laughs> no way. <laughs> worst name ever. <laughs> has to be the worst day in a brand market. Like, <laughs> Not sure why that failed, but... <laughs> <laughs> Come on, ISIL. And then like, oh, God, oh no. God, that's um, hilarious. <laughs> so, you know, and then that failed and they sold it. Uh, yeah. you know, and when my to ISIS. Or, yeah. No, I'm kidding. No, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. yeah. American Express, so okay. not, not uh, ISIS. Okay. And, yeah. and then, uh, and then uh, Verizon had a program called Universal ID, and then they folded, right. and Symantec had one yeah. called ID. And they That's what I'm saying. It. You're going, it's literally it's just been a revolving yeah. door of people saying, we're going to do identity. So I want to know, how are you going to do identity? And so I think you know, what I learned along the way is like, you know, why can't Facebook and Google do this? Right. And it's because they're advertising companies. And so there are most portable logins today, but they're not trusted. Right. Because they sell your data. Like if we vote online one day in this country, which may be the apex of digital identity, God Absolutely. forbid it's Mark Zuckerberg's company that verifies it. <laughs> right. Uh, at the bottom right quadrant, you know, with banks and employers, mm -hmm. uh, the problem with those is that they view your identity as a moat. Your Jamie Dimon doesn't want your identity to help you open up a fintech account with SoFi, right? That lowers switching costs for his customers. Like he's mm -hmm. got branded branches that cost a ton of money to maintain. Last thing he wants to do is have you have control of your identity 
and defect to rival switching costs. Identity literally keeps right. people locked, locked in this ecosystem. Right. Employers view your data as theirs. You leave your account, you leave your work, and like it gets shut down. Whether it's Okta mm -hmm. or Ping or Fordrock, whatever, it's right. their data. And so as we looked at it, we go, well, portable logins aren't trusted, and trusted logins aren't portable. And the reason why people don't trust the logins that are portable is, is because there's something wrong with their business. They're like, mm -hmm. Facebook is a massive app that has all of your messaging data and behavioral data yeah. and images. And then when they come down and start to track you, it's really creepy. We call that a voyeur state. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and then if a principle like Visa is that your identity utility should be neutral, you can't compete with other folks. So Amazon has tried to do Amazon Pay and some other stuff, but right. would Walmart or Target like ever? Never, never. never. Yeah, never. And so, and so you're like, so as I kept looking at them, like our, the beauty of our model is that we are purely neutral and we only want to do identity and credentials. That's it. Yeah. Which are often already public. Like your professional mm -hmm. certifications are listed on state licensing databases. Right. You could FOIA my military service. Mm -hmm. What we do is just verify that you are in fact you, um, but we don't play at the app layer, either digital or physical. So like mm -hmm. China's fused all three together. China does biometric surveillance of your in-person activity. Wow. WeChat and Tencent are also the identity layers. Mm -hmm. When you fuse all three together, you're a surveillance state. Mm -hmm. In an American model, mm -hmm. we said, well, look, we, we want to be the, the wallet, the very thin layer of identity for credentials. Right. But we never want to track your behavioral data. Mm -hmm. So if you had our logs, it would be like Blake Hall logged into the VA. That's it. I'm a veteran. Okay. Or like I checked into MGM, which uses us for digital room check-in. Mm -hmm. What you do at MGM? What you MGM here? Are. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Where have you been staying? Okay. Like there's no lines in Vegas anymore yeah, at MGM yeah. proper. I smile every time I, I go in there. It's the worst. Right. We give we give over 300,000 people an average of 15 minutes of their life back, mm -hmm. 4.5 million minutes per month, and they've been able to reduce their front desk staffing. So it's wow. We're like the easy pass lane instead of toll booth workers for pretty much every workflow. So you don't have to wait in line um, right. if you don't want to. So you also do like vaccination stuff too. We do. We you do. Just started doing that. Yeah, we're and we're the login in California for the California Department of Public Health, so people can actually get their immunization records in the first place. Oh wow, that's cool. All right, so interesting. I'm so interested to hear like <laughs> where you started with the yeah. you know literally the Craigslist for for veterans to be yeah. now the identity for everyone. That's pretty amazing to pivot. So um, <laughs> thanks. Just a quick, quick. Yeah, just a quick story, right? Um, so yeah, so let's um, let's talk about the um, some of the uh, so Tampa. We're here in Tampa. Yeah, thank you for joining us here in of course Tampa, yeah. Tampa area. Um, you you just opened an office here, and can you talk a little about that? We love Tampa, so tell us a little more about why and what kind of the impetus of that was. Yeah, I love Tampa too. Uh, a lot of my uh, best friends from Vanderbilt freshman year were from Tampa and St. Oh. Pete, so I came down here a fair bit. Uh, it's very cool to have an office here now. We have uh, six hundred employees on Henderson. Avenue and it's become uh, a, a really nice hub for us. Great. Um, is that the only office you have besides DC? Huh? Oh wow. And when did that when did that happen? Uh, yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> like, it's been a blur. I think it happened last summer. Uh, okay, is when right. we we had we had, it had been in the works for a while, but I right. think that's when we actually formally opened the office. Okay. Um, and then of course we have a lot of folks that just work remotely and are all across the country. All right. So actually, that was my next question was be about about culture. So we just had Jen Lim talking about culture, and, yeah. and, and obviously it's become a thing um, everywhere, right? Everyone talks about company culture. So I want to hear about how you've been doing com company culture with the new office, and obviously remote and pandemic and growing like crazy. <laughs> how does it all work? How do you keep I it together? Love that question because we've been very uh, methodical about culture. In fact, uh, you know, our last round we raised from Viking and Capital G. 
Um, and, and as we talked to various growth equity funds, they said, you guys are the most structured around culture uh, that we have ever seen. Um, which, which, Huge compliment. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And, and I, I have to credit you know, Google's research a little bit for it because they've, they've put a lot about uh, Google's research on work that's out there. And I think you know, Google might be a little bit like Thomas Jefferson in that like, what they researched and found out is not necessarily like what they do, but we'll leave that aside for a moment. And so, um, and so what, what the research shows is that if you want to hire an effective employee, there are three categories that lead to a successful hire. Um, cognitive ability, which is like how quickly do you learn it has a 26% R squared to future performance. Uh, skills test has a 29% R squared to successful performance. And then a structured interview has a 26% R squared to successful performance. So essentially, if you evaluate those three things against the job you're hiring for, you can get to an 81% chance of a successful hire. Whereas an unstructured interview, which is what I was doing in the early days, even when I was a scout platoon leader, I didn't, I was like, you're fast and like can run for forever. So let's go. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're in, we need more. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Can you it's shoot? Really interesting. You know? So structured interview, way better. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, and so, you know, if, if you're able, the skills part is the hardest because it's yeah. like, how do you evaluate engineers? Versus yeah, that's people. hard. Yeah. But, um, you know, cognitive ability is kind of what the NFL does in the combine, which yep. is that, like, you know, are you Rudy or, right. you know, are you Jamar Chase, right? Because right. there's a big difference between the two. But, right. but on, on the culture side, we defined our culture not by amorphous habit or amorphous values that, like, Enron had on the wall, like excellence and integrity. We define them as... <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that's what... The, oh, that's pretty funny. Those are the Enron values, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, we define them as, as habits that were that we're crystal clear. Mm -hmm. So our first company value is don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that is if you cannot control your fight or flight, if you're a narcissist who needs to inflate uh, your protection around your ego by putting other people down, mm -hmm. make them scared to come to work, right. you're not welcome here. Um, so that's the very first uh, value that we have. Our second value is always compete. We look for a weird track record of competitiveness. Like one of my favorite engineers, if I beat him in Mario Kart on Friday, he would think about it all weekend just to play me on Monday, <laughs> Monday mornings there. I'm like, let's play again. I just, I haven't thought, it's just because you're right here. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, why not? That's exactly what would happen. And I, and I loved it. Like yeah. weirdly competitive about mm -hmm. everything. And, and if you think about, you know, one other value that, that I'll talk about is, uh, is treat each customer like your favorite family member. And what mm -hmm. it's really about is empathy. And if you're in an interview and you have a question that's, tell me about a time when you did something for someone else when it didn't benefit you to do that at all. If you don't have empathy, you have zero examples. But people who practice empathy and kindness will have all sorts of examples. And so I took a lot of first round review questions that were the favorite questions, you know, of interviewers that were out there. And then I structured them under... Uh, under all of our cultural values, I created three interview tracks with clear, a clear rubric for scoring so that we would have a consistent score against our culture. And, and now the feedback to me at 2000 employees is I have yet to meet somebody at IDME who is not kind. I've yet to meet a jerk. My, you know, people go out of their way even when they're busy to spend time with me to get to know me and to help me get up to speed. I mean, that is, that is like the consistent feedback and it's the most validating thing as a leader when when you have those uh, that feedback coming in and, and so my last question my favorite or my last comment my favorite question is tell me about a time that something went wrong that was gonna be the next question actually <laughs> some mistakes you along the way so you're you're reading this you've got amazing sight as well there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs>
Well, so the person who tells you about, uh, you know, my boss was terrible and my coworkers were terrible, like you're about to be their boss. <laughs> Those are about to be their coworkers, right? right? Flip it, right? So, so the, but the person who's like, you know, the environment wasn't maybe the best, but like for what I could control, here's what I learned. We want learners and not blamers. So that's under the value of own your mistakes so you can learn from them. Somebody who consistently blames other people for their failures and the team's lack of success, mm -hmm. they create toxic locker rooms and toxic office environment. When you find a team that when something goes wrong, they go, I could have done this better. And everyone, Jocko Willink actually talks a lot about that too. It is phenomenal to lead a team that is committed to learning. Because uh, that's what entrepreneurship is about. It's about learning at an individual level and if you want a company that learns at an institutional level, you have to screen for learners and not blamers. That's great. Um, okay, so let's talk about you a little bit more. Uh, how do you, you, you fuel the success of this? This it's been it seems like a rocket ship here. Um, Personally, know, like what do you do, like to keep it, keep <laughs> keep it up and keep it going? Like, it's a lot. Coffee. Uh, you know, I've got I've got uh, <laughs> I got three kids now. I know that's what I mean. There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on. Um, you know, I've I've consistently fired myself from uh, from tasks that that weren't critical, you know, at that moment. So, um, so uh, you know, I'm very blessed. Like our VP of Engineering, Alexi, ran Google's login teams. And, you know, their advanced account protection program. Stephen Benedict ran personalization and AI and ML at Amazon. Uh, Anon Meta, our chief people officer, you know, was uh, was Ray Dalio's guy for people and talent for ten years. And like, I am humbled to have you know and so right now like we're we're at irs and there's obviously all sorts of questions about what is idme and mm -hmm. um and why are these steps there my job as a ceo is is to focus on pr and comms to make sure that people understand mm -hmm. the context within which we operate and why this is relevant yeah. uh you know and even right now the new york times doing a story washington post wired like wow this, like right now yep um and so uh so, so really, like I, you only have so much time in a day, and it seems like the time gets shorter. But you, you have to find great people who have skills uh, where they're stronger than you, and say, hey, you know, pass the baton. Uh, and then what I really do is I focus a lot on alignment. So every every Sunday, everyone writes an update to me each morning. Uh, it shouldn't take more than 15 minutes to write about what they're working on and just updates and tasks. That way, everyone in the Slack channel can see what everyone else is working on. Mm -hmm. I read all of them, and then I write a summary back to them, uh, which is my synthesis of what I read and what I think the priorities are. Mm -hmm. We meet on Monday morning as an exec team. Friday, we do a Founders Town Hall every every week with the whole company still on Zoom mm -hmm. uh, at 4 o'clock for 30 minutes, mm -hmm. or at 3.30, rather, for, for 30 minutes. And then uh, and then we have a you know ops meeting every two weeks. And th those rituals and things, they keep everyone aligned like i am transparent to a fault because i want everyone to have enough information to do their job and and i know how depressing and demoralizing that can be if you're a soldier carrying a 75 pound ruck through mountain phase of ranger school and you're on this death march that you have no idea when it ends mm -hmm. and somebody comes along and is like hey we have one click left to go it's going to be about another hour and then we're good you're like oh thank god <laughs> so like Information but is key. Not, not knowing where the finish line is right. just crushes the human psyche. And so right. um, so I've tried to take a lot of those lessons with me. It's great. It sounds very like the process you've set up for your team is very important. Did you set that up or were there others that helped get that going and keeping it like running? That, that part of it, that part of it was me. Mm -hmm. I think that's the founder's job. Whoever's yeah. in the CEO's seat is mm -hmm. get the big ideas right. Uh, I mean, you have three jobs. One, never run out of money. 
We're going to talk about that next. Yeah, because at the beginning, you don't have the big ideas right. So never run out of money. Yep. Two, get the big ideas right. Mm -hmm. Three, uh, recruit, retain, and align terrific people. And, and that's that's really your three jobs as CEO. We talked about the last two. Let's talk about the money real quick. And I know we're almost at the end of time here, but um, we're standing between us and happy hour, <laughs> or everyone in happy hour. So let's, uh, let's talk about the... Um, the, the money side of it because you've done a great job doing that and i know that you know i don't we don't need to go through it all but more or less what would you ex share with with any startup founders here anybody in the stream here listening that is out there thinking about this and you know thinking about getting their pickup truck and pulling a u-haul down <laughs> down to whatever area and, and getting it going with the with the first check or whatever um the the first thing is is find people with great character like i'm so pumped that you and, and jen are, are doing a fund because you are authentic and like genuinely a good person i count myself so grateful that our early board members just were always in my corner you know they're the type of board members that uh, will pick you up uh when you're low and will pop that ego a little bit when you get too high you know if you find if you find fairweather friends as investors that's really rough because um, because then they're correlated like when they're down they kick you <laughs> when you're up and you're just like where were you at like when I needed you in the dark right. days right so so I think focusing on again like culture focusing on people who really get your vision really get it mm -hmm. uh, we always raised on clean terms so mm -hmm. never did anything like participating preferred or weird liquidation preferences never do that it will bury your common stock and as you're trying right. to incentivize people it'll just crush your cap table so I always would rather take a lower valuation on clean terms like and that's where standardized term like what people are used to so you're not doing some weird thing and then later someone comes yeah. in like well they can't do this because of this crazy term right that's right so yeah. so if you're like fixated on oh i want to get to a 20 million dollar valuation right and then the vc goes well i'll give you a 20 million dollar valuation but i want a 3x liquidation prep right no that's mind. done you're done yeah 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 because like they're they don't really think you're they're worth 20 million they're just locking in the floor for their return right and then the next investor who sees it will go well you gave them a 3x I want six now <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. or even or it just gets bigger either way right exactly. if you raise 20 million dollars well now the 3x liquidation prep is 60 million right so now you've got like 75 million buried under liquidation preps if you sell for 80 million dollars only 5 million goes to the founders and the employees right so ne like you're burying yourself down that's and that's the thing that if you make that mistake once maybe you can unwind it in the very early days if your investor yeah realizes it's a pyrrhic victory because it will crush the incentives of the company mm -hmm. but maybe not so like avoid that one like the plague that's great advice great advice so i guess in that situation a lot of times it's out of desperation and feeling like they're in a position that they have to take the terms because maybe they've run out of money or maybe they're at they didn't think of any other options so what would you how would you advise those companies if they came to you and like you were in that position or they were in that position you know i i think i read though that like even whatsapp who is like uh sequoia got like a 3x liquidation pref even on that deal so, so sometimes i think it's just like not even knowing what the terms are or right. it could just be vanity because you really want you really want to tell people that i was valued at this number not realizing that there's a reason why these gimlet eyed folks like are doing what you know what they're yeah. doing and so um you really have to have a great mentor to um to steer you through that stuff and 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 even you know to have a hard conversation if they want to invest and it's like well look like i know that you actually don't believe in this valuation if this term is here so what's the real valuation on the company because mm -hmm. you'd rather take that you always your job again is to align everybody investors employees and if you go look if i take this then our incentives are misaligned at key moments right like yeah. the companies were 60 million and the investors have 75 million worth of prep and i know that we can't really grow much more than that 
how motivated is the, is the management team and the employees to work at that point? You're all employees to like the folks who got it. You never want to end up sideways with your investors. And so a really good entrepreneur would be like, let's, let's talk about removing this term and what the real valuation that you have on it. And, and just being honest about that stuff will really help you. That's a great, great advice. And because you can to walk it back most cases if, mm -hmm. if you have that honest conversation. And if they run, it's not meant to be. <laughs> it's you got like, super lucky. You just yeah. avoided like the bunny yeah. boiler equivalent, you know, right. like fatal attraction or whatever. So. Absolutely. All right. Uh, just one more final thought before we leave. I know we're, we're, we're a little over here. So anything else you want to share before we, we head out? Uh, you know, if the idea matters, just never give up. Like if you're, if you're really good at learning and that was my attitude too, is that you'll just fund me for long enough. I will eventually figure out a big enough opportunity. And, um, and, and the last thing I'll leave you with, you know, when, when we were making our pivot from, uh, from troop swap, you know, to, to this identity utility, I, uh, I went up to on a train to New York City uh, to Andy Dunn's uh, apartment, and he's uh, the founder of Bonobos. Um, and the folks there were amazing. Like Andy Ratcliffe, who's a Hall of Fame in investor uh, from uh, Benchmark, mm -hmm. and he founded Wealthfront, and he lectures at Stanford, GSB. He was giving a talk, but it was the Warby Parker founders, the Venmo founders were all in this room. And during a break, I talked to one of the Warby Parker guys, and he looks at me and he goes, uh, is this your first startup? I go, yep. I'm like, he's like, how much do you raise? That's how I was like $3 million. And he goes, don't fuck it up. Big stigma. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so <laughs> you know, that conversation uh, on the train ride back down, I was like, look, uh, we had some money left, but I knew the business model would work. I could look at the churn numbers and I saw the unit economics were not sustainable. And I'm like, if, if we just continue to do what we do, we will eventually run out of money and everyone will go their separate ways and it'll have been a waste of everyone's time and a loss of capital. And I was like, if this is my one shot, I'm going to go for it. Like, I'm going to follow what I know to be true in the bigger opportunity. And so that next Monday, when I got back with the team, I'm like, look, this is what the market is telling us. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants verification. They don't really care about like our demand gen capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so we need to build PayPal for identity because, and, and that's what we focused on. And then when we went live with Under Armour and, and like a pilot with the VA and Telluride, we signed up 48,000 users in the first 45 days. Wow. And it's the best feeling. That's true product market fit. But man, it, it takes, it sounds easy now, but it took balls like to, to do that. And it was really stressful right. hard, yeah. you know, but that's what entrepreneurship is all about. It's, it's what uh, I think Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz talk about. It's having strong opinions that are weakly held. As soon as you invalidate key assumptions that were essential to your plan. Just like when I was in Iraq and like no plan survives first contact with the enemy, you just got ambushed. You don't pretend like it, you didn't get ambushed. <laughs> right. And that's what's crazy about some startups. Right. Like They're you're so like, yeah. you know, or you're so tied to it where it's like, no guys, like we just got blown up and like we need to, we need to react to it. And then, and then if you're just honest with it, it can be rough, but man, coming through the other side and like, yeah carving out something where these credit bureaus and data brokers realize they can't even compete with us and we're ripping apart $42 billion organizations that have been the subject of class action suits. And it's, it's, it's awesome. So, <laughs> so like, you know, just keep learning, be brave when you need to be brave and have courage and, but also be humble and, and listen and, uh, and make sure that, um, that like, the things that are core to you that you're being honest with yourself about whether you've proved them or not. And if you haven't, you just gotta, you gotta dodge and weep. Thank you so much, Blake Hall. Appreciate you being here. Great stuff. 
Thank you to Blake, who has been a longtime member of the Startup of the Year community. It's always uh, very interesting to hear some of those stories and to find out what path a startup navigated to get to where it is today. We also want to, again, mention that we live-streamed the entire summit. So if you could not attend in person, make sure to go back and watch it on the YouTube channel at SOTY.link forward slash EST YouTube. All right. Now I want to go ahead and spread the word again about one of our partners, Open Grants, because we think that some of our listeners could take a lot of value out of the services they provide. The Open Grants platform is a search engine and expert marketplace that unlocks non-dilutive U.S. funding for organizations around the world. Empowering startups, nonprofits, grant writers, foundations, and government agencies to participate in a new paradigm of funding, which is a pretty great resource. And we have a special offer for our listeners today. You can all go ahead and sign up for free and search grants at opengrants.io forward slash established. Again, that's opengrants.io forward slash established. And for all you listeners out there, if you enjoyed the conversation and interview today, please do share it with someone that you think will find it helpful. Well, that's it for our episode today. Remember, if you have a startup idea or want to get something going, today is the best day to get things rolling. And in doing so, we encourage you to join our community for access to the support, expert advice, and resources you need to elevate your startup by going to SOTY.link forward slash apply. Until next time, I'm John Guidos. We'll see you here again soon. Thanks for listening to the Startup of the Year podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'll be back with another episode soon.